1: When you look at the guys who are kicking ass, do you believe that they were just born that way? Do you think that grinding and hustling and pressure and scarcity are the keys to being successful? And is it possible to create the life or business or relationships you want without having an inner critic chewing on your ass every day? Dr. Michael Gervais is a high performance psychologist who works with the Seattle Seahawks and Fortune 100 companies. Today. We pick apart the myths of being a high performer, understand the
0: inner critic, and reveal the key ingredient to enjoying the life we want.
1: Welcome to The Demand. Today we're talking with Dr. Michael Gervais. He's a high-performance psychologist. He's worked with everyone from elite-level athletes to Fortune 100 CEOs. He's got an online course called Compete to Create that he created with Seattle Seahawks coach Pete Carroll and Olympian Nicole Davis. He's also got a podcast called Finding Mastery. Michael, thank you so much for talking.
2: Stoked to be here with you. Thank yeah. you for having me.
1: Yeah. I, I heard you recently on another program. I got really excited by some of the things you were talking about, and, I, and it was just a perfect fit to have you, have you come on board. We've had a lot of the similar guests and a lot of people in our mutual uh, connections, so um, I'm excited to make a connection with you and, and see if we can help out the listener today.
2: Um, What's up? Thank you.
1: The thing that I understand is that so much of what you do, obviously, as a high-performance psychologist, is all about mindset. So let's kick it off there. When it comes to high performance and it comes to mindset, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that folks out there have about being a high performer? When they think of the, the mindset that they need to have, I imagine there's all kinds of myths and things that might be getting in their way. What are some of the things that come to mind?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's changing. I'll, I'll dive into what I think traditional myths are. And it's changing over the last, let's call it 20, certainly, but even like five years when I would go speak with organizations or work with a team. Um, so I'm currently working with the Seattle Seahawks. And let's call it eight years ago when people were coming in, they like the new drafts, right, the young guys, college guys. And when they would come in, they weren't as clear about what mental skills are. They knew that it's an important part of the game, but haven't actually done the work with them. And now as the, the newer classes are coming in, they 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 know, they've been exposed to it. Like So it's part of the ecosystem in the NCAAs, the, the college ranks of actually not just talking about the mind, but actually training and giving them some tools to be able to work with. So here's the myths. Um, those people that's, you know, on top of the podium or running large corporations, they're different than us, that they're born that way, that confidence can't be taught, that, um, you know, they sleep less than I need sleep. And like, there's, there's myths about their recovery, and there's myths about how to actually work the mind. And the basic one is that they're born that way, which is not the case. (laughs) Um, The other myth is that somehow If you invest on the interior, your inner life, that that is soft (laughs) and that that makes you weak. And, you know, it's just flat out not the case anymore. But I understand where that both of those myths came from, because it wasn't long ago where people would bang on their chest saying, you know, I'm a grinder, I'm sleeping five hours a night and, you know, I'm getting it done, harden up. And like that was just part of a culture that, you know, that was pervasive And there's something really macho about it, you know, like I can do difficult things and I'm hardened and, you know, I'm not weak or whatever. And I'm not saying any of that's wrong. (laughs) But the idea that as a human, you can be your best or even close to your best at five hours sleep, six hours of sleep, that's the science won't back that up. And matter of fact, the rounded to the nearest decimal on a percentage point of people who can thrive. Um, or do and operate well under less than seven hours sleep is exactly zero. Wow. And that's a cool stat, right? And so we used to think that it was a normal distribution, a normal curve, that some people could operate with five hours of sleep and some people needed 10 hours of sleep, but most of us needed between seven and eight. Well, below seven, we got problems. And matter of fact, five hours of sleep for five days is the equivalent of testing vigilance and focus as a drunk person. And we do know that there's no real benefit over nine hours of sleep from a performance standpoint. Um, we can get into sleep if you want, but like the basic myths, you know, are that they're different, they're born that way, it's soft, and um, uh, you know, I don't need to recover, or I they recover in different mechanisms than I do.
1: God, you know, as you said that, I could almost hear the voice of that inner critic in our head, which is, I shouldn't need help. I should be able to get by on less. I'm weak if I ask for help. I'm weak if I need anything, right? I should be able to just pile on more pressure, more urgency. And if I can't do it, then something's wrong with me. This inner critic is huge. And it sounds like when we try to prove it wrong or we try to play its game, we weaken ourselves too. Where does that come in with some of the guys that you're working at at a high level, How do you, how do you deal with the inner critic that wants to just come in and just always there trying to belittle them for everything that they've done? Even if it's fantastic, there's always this, this part of us that wants to point something out.
2: The self-talk and the relationship we have with ourselves about ourselves, you know, as it maps to future events, as it maps to things that are happening right now, or even things that, you know, we've experienced in the past, self-talk in that conversation is the essence of the mental game. And so, and you know, I even hesitate when I say the word game, like it's not a game. (laughs) It's the actual epicenter of how people understand who they are and what they're capable of. It's the dialogue and conversation we have with ourselves. So how do we deal with the critic? Well, you know, I mean, step number one of this whole um, investment on the inner life so that you can flourish in the external world, whether that's in high performance or whether that's in love or creation or fill in the blanks whatever you want to do as an output that um it starts with awareness and so awareness of what you say to yourself and how you think about yourself relative to the task at hand without awareness it really is you know we're stuck in mud and awareness is trainable awareness is um one of the core elements of meditation, of mindfulness, of journaling, of deep conversations with wise people, of self-reflection, like without awareness, it is at the epicenter. It's ground zero for being able to become a better version to upgrade the way that you live, um, both from an internal standpoint and an external output.
1: And so what about that guy that says, wait a second, I- I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna succeed without this. Voice in my head that's like beating on me and pushing me harder and stronger. I mean, we can see just imagine the the old Nike ads that just do it, like seeking this hardness, seeking difficulty, seeking complexity, and and that push. Like, well, without that, then I won't be successful. How do we How do we find a balance between that? I mean, I, I want to find a healthy version there for 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 my guy that that's listening to this, so that he can he can grow, but not have to use pressure and fear. And harshness to to push himself or is that possible?
2: Okay, it I mean trip what you're talking about is like, can I keep an edge about progression and growth and at the same time not cut myself, not get in my own way? A, a thousand percent. Now, is it easy? No. Because the zeitgeist is, you know, don't be a wimp.
1: That's the shadow, that's the fear. I'm gonna be yeah, I'm gonna you know, be found don't be out. a
2: wimp, don't be this, that, and the other. And so how do we work with ourselves about that? Well, it, it is possible to orientate yourself to not come from an anxious, scared place. Okay, it is possible. That's not easy. Most people that I spend time with that are tip of the arrow, half percenters of the world, changing industry, changing their sport, which is not a light statement that I make there. Most of them are driven underneath by anxiety. And that relentless, aggressive self-critic towards themselves is, it got them to be really good. And letting go of that, that's not easy. It's a little bit like if you've been taking, I don't know aspirin for your whole life because you have headaches or whatever, you know, and then somebody comes along and says, hey, maybe you shouldn't be taking aspirins anymore. Like you'd say, whoa, you don't know my headaches, (laughs) you know. In other words, to the performer, like, whoa, you don't know this anxiety, you know, you don't know this kind of crazy crave I have to be able to do the extraordinary to feel like I matter. And I'm, I'm not changing that game up. It's gotten me good. Yeah, but there's a cost. Let's talk about the cost. The cost is is fatigue. And the cost is not really being able to enjoy um, anything other than the achievements. And so there's a there's a dark side to trying to become your best and or the best. And that begins with the dialogue and relationship you have with yourself. And if that thing is so critical, um, let me put an asterisk in that. Not one statement's going to screw anyone up. OK, it's death by a thousand cuts. So it's this chronic, relentless, sometimes slipperily silent, um, self-abrasive, I'm not good enough conversation or a worry that I might not be good enough that really constricts true potential and it creates a fatigue because it's a drain on the system. So here's, here's some, some things that I think we need to face. One is nobody does the extraordinary alone. And if you really want to explore the extraordinary life that you do hold within you, And I don't want to sound so like mystic here, but each person that we engage with and and they engage with has potential, has a potential. Some it's game changing, world changing. Others it is not. But we have some sort of capacity and we don't get to know our potential until we push to the capacity, to the limits and then retract and recover and then rinse and repeat and do the same thing again over and over and over again. And in that process, if we're cutting ourselves, we're self-critiquing at a, at a level that is so abrasive that it strips joy and it's replaced with anxiety and fatigue, the long game cannot be played. To go to the extraordinary place of freedom, of being able to express oneself artistically, it's a long game. That's why you hear people all the time say, you know, you got to figure out how to fall in love with it. Well, you can't love it if you're constantly critiquing the person that's allowing you to do it, which is yourself. So, Yeah, well, let me
1: ask you this because I, I wonder, you're talking about a game that we learn at a young age. Okay, I'm young. I want to prove that I'm a man. I'm going to prove that I'm strong. And on one hand, we can watch how we've got a lot of energy, a lot of power, especially as athletes, right? We can see where they have a prime early in their 20s and then they fade out. Is there a parallel mentally Where if they're driven by this anxiety, or or we, all of us are driven by this thing, and we we can play that game for a few years, and then we eventually fatigue and burn out. Is there a parallel mentally to that physical prime that we're talking about here? Does that make sense?
2: Is there a parallel, like a physical prowess parallel, with um, the critique?
1: If you're saying yeah, if you're saying that we can only play that game for a while, we can really push ourselves with the negativity, and it'll eventually fatigue us does that correspond with that kind of physical prowess that you talk about in our twenties? And then we learn how to play a different game. I just wonder if there's a, if there's an aspect of that with, with that, with being a young mind, it's a young place where we're not so aware and then we we learn to, to shift into a different awareness. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. So why do people change? Because of pain. How do we grow? We get uncomfortable. And so the pain at some point of like, I'm pretty damn good at what I do and I don't like myself and I don't love this. And this is lame. And but I'm hamstringed in a little bit because I've got these golden handcuffs, because the thing that I've spent 20 years doing, 15 years doing, it's paying well, it's part of my identity. I can't leave now because it's it's pretty much working, but I don't feel good. Like this isn't the way I want to do life. That pain creates a shift for people, or it can create a shift. And I want to be clear, like some people can stay their whole life being overly critical of themselves and I mean that's their choice you know like that that's just it's just a for me it's a function of quality of life more so than it is a direct relationship to high performance so you can be a high performer performing well in life and business whatever and not like yourself at the same time and not feel good about yourself be fatigued and work from fear and anxiety as as a as a uh, core epicenter but that that's rare that you can get into potential and have that mechanism work. It gets you so far, but then it it limits you. Yeah, it'll take, that's right. It's a little bit like, I don't know, um, tread on tires. At some point, the tread will just run thin and it runs thinner faster. And I'm talking about joy in life and self, like really feeling good about who you are and how you do life. It runs thinner faster with overly abusive self critique. And, but I don't want, I don't want to miss your point, which is like, it's a real deal that gets people good.
1: How much of that plays into the work that you do where maybe the commitment is to the organization. I don't want to, uh, you, 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 you can kind of pump the brakes on this question, but it's like, we know that we're only going to be able to drive these guys so hard for so long. Is that part of the work is just understanding, like we want those guys that are just whipping their own ass to, to get going or, cause I, I could see this happening in corporations where they incentivize guys to do things a certain way. And then, they get tired of it. So, I mean, is that part of the culture?
2: Yeah. I mean, every culture is uniquely different, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really built by the philosophical approach of the head coach or the general manager or whoever kind of is at the epicenter of, of shaping the culture Uh, at the Seattle Seahawks. It's the furthest from be self-critical because what we know is that like, we're not trying to create an environment that, Nobody wants to be around and in. In a self-critical environment, a critical of other environment, that's not great. It's not fun. It's not potential. It's not that gap between performance and potential. It's more about can we consistently you know, um, do high performance but the co- at the cost of a culture that is not free, forget about it. So what Coach Carroll is trying to do is create an environment that is electric and stimulating where people are working to figure out how to expand themselves at the highest level to find their very best and to help the persons next to them do the very same so it in the Seattle Seahawks it's not that at all Mm and matter of fact one of the reasons is because you can't really turn off self-critique and critique of others like it's the same lens that you end up seeing the world through so we know that when we are let's say Uh, On the other side of uh, the column, the win-loss column that we'd like to be in a game, say it's third quarter, down by 20 points, we don't want people to have a critique. We don't want them to critique. Like We want them to stay in it and, and stay connected to the task at hand, the things they can control and doing it at their very best and being free from what the outcome might be, being free from making a judgment about the direction it's going. Because you know, it only takes one bounce. It only takes one little shift for momentum to to change for the hot hand, whatever you know, feeling that comes along with great freedom, and and high, highest performance. So we don't want them to critique. It's a way of saving one's self esteem. It's a way of protecting even self critique, critique of the score, critique of others, critique of self. It's a way to try to protect yourself from being hurt.
1: It sounds like it's, let's stay focused on what can we create? What can we do versus here's all the things I'm doing wrong, which takes our focus off the game and, you know, all the possibilities.
2: Flat out. Okay.
1: Yeah, flat out. Is yeah. that, is that a new, is that, I mean, is this a movement in, in, uh, you know, kind of a new wave of doing things? Cause you know, I, I remember growing up in the, kind of the archetype of the head coach was the guy that was throwing his visor and slobbering everywhere, yelling and screaming at people and kind of, I mean, is this a, is this a shift of what's possible or, or is this more of an outlier thing?
2: Well, Coach Carroll is a, you know, he's a harbinger. Like he is a, he's got a completely unique approach to helping men become their very best from other coaches. So yes, and I'm not sure that I would say completely uniquely up to him. Like, yes, this is part of it. But the other part is that the science is informing best practices and the science, the psychological science of how to help people truly flourish and perform towards their potential is not from a cauldron of consistent critique. It, you know, It's not that. That doesn't mean that, we're, that the culture isn't soft. I mean, the culture's hard. It is so intently competitive that you have to bring your A game. And what we know is that you know, it becomes grubby and grindy and slowing the whole system down when somebody is trying to constantly protect themselves by self-critique or critique of others or critique of the situation. And so, you know, it's science and it's creativity from, uh, coaches to be able to do things differently than they were taught. I think and that's so, the
1: seduction of the inner critic, which is if you let go of me, then you will fail, right? You will get soft. There's no, there's no daylight yeah. in between complete disengagement and relaxing some of this, uh, brow beating that, that happens there. And, and in between we find where we can really flourish as you say.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying, um, that there is space for self critique. I'm saying that it's common, it happens, but there are ways to avoid it and to lessen it. And when we do that, we actually speed up or, or accelerate um, the rate of performance, the consistency of performance, as well as the fun of being in an environment while still maintaining, you know, um, high levels of output.
1: I found that when we're in that, in that state where we're self critiquing and we're looking in the mirror, you know, Hey, does my ass look big or whatever? We're, instead of looking at, the challenge in front of us, right? And and being creative about that. And so it's, I think it's one of the things that's just like, oh yeah, well, if I'm just looking at how big my ass looks in the mirror, I'm not taking a look at, you know, how to solve this problem.
2: <laughs> it's and, so uh, funny. You know, I don't think I've ever had that statement. <laughs> is this something that you talk about like your ass-bibbing? big? <laughs> is hilarious. But yeah, yeah, I mean, stay with the point. Like, yeah. It's how do I look
1: versus what's going to be effective essentially, right?
2: Well, it really, we strip it down. It's like, what's in our control, what's not. You know, and it sounds so simple and trite and whatever, but we want to help people leverage themselves in a position of being um, autonomous and uh, internally powerful, which is that word is self-efficacious. So we want to help people lever themselves to have great impact. And you don't have great impact when you're just trying to manipulate something that you truly can't control. Mm -hmm. So whatever your ass is like, that okay, (laughs) like come back around. Like, how about the function of it? Like for an athlete, you know, am I able to, um, am I dynamic and strong and powerful and look at those things. And then if you take your strengths, your middle capacities and your lower capacities, right? So strengths and weaknesses, the easy way to think about it, but it's not so linear. And what we want to work on, we don't want, we're not trying to help people focus on their weaknesses. That's not the game we're trying to do. We're trying to understand your strengths, put you in a position of your strengths more often so that you can excel and, you know, um, take advantage of those unique strengths. And then we move to that middle tier and we're trying to move that middle tier up into the strength category. And, you know, when you get exposed and you're down, you know, uh, caught off guard or on your heels, on your weaknesses, that don't feel good. So part of the strategy is to, you know, work on those, get those tiered up, but at the elite level, and I'm talking the half percenters, everybody's good. You better position yourself in a position of strength. Because everybody's got game, and they are trying to put you in a position of weakness. So part of the game is knowing your strengths, investing time to make sure that those middle strengths move up to the upper strengths, and then um, adjusting quickly so you're not caught on your heels.
1: How often uh, I find that sometimes with guys that I work with, they're they're creating complexity. It's it's part of that thing of I've got to I've got to be always proving that I'm tough and I'm smart and whatever, right? They they're, they're always looking. And so they, they look for ways to ramp up the challenge and they may set their thermostat for challenge far beyond their skill level. And they, they kind of stay in this place of overwhelm a lot because there's a, they get to be celebrated for being busy and frantic and urgent and always, uh, you know, always, uh, always fighting a fire, so to speak. So I call this kind of allergy to ease thing, but it's also another way that that we make ourselves weak because we're always seeking more difficulty, more complexity, because it's a way that we get, some kind of reward for it, at least egoically. Does this show up in the work? Maybe not so much with athletes. I don't know, but do you, do you find this with, with some of the people in the business world that are f- trying to find ways to do things in a more difficult or complex way? Are they allergic to ease? Are they allergic to finding that path where they can just really shine and there's a it's kind of just a flow instead of this grip it and rip it kind of thing?
2: Well, there, there's no path to the extraordinary without going through difficult, you know, experiences so i want to spend some time on this because the way to improve at anything is to get to the edge of your capacity and then to recover intelligently so it's high stress acute difficultly nauseatingly grindy stress and then recover properly and so i mean that's it now the reason it sounds so clear that way but when you're saying grip it and rip it, yeah, but the recovery piece has to be added so that you can really grip it and rip it next time. And what athletes, I think what we can learn from athletes and as a translation into um, uh, business is that we make a mistake when we herald them for their output, for standing on uh, the podium, for you know hoisting the trophy, for getting the win. The mistake is to herald them for that extraordinary feat but to really take a, another look at how they organize their life. On a consistent basis, they are mastering the stress and recovery balance. And their days are hard, physically, emotionally, and psychologically, their days are hard. And there is no other path you know, to say, you know what, we're gonna take it easy. No, the easy part is the recovery, which also is a serious mechanism so the reason we invest in recovery is so we can do it again, that get up and get after it again. Okay, now, that's a basic framework, and we can get into the weeds of tactics there. But when I first started spending time in the business world, this was about 10 years ago, I couldn't believe how they were doing it. Zero recovery mechanisms. Like it was it – was un- coming from elite sport into to high-performing business organizations, it was like, how are you doing it? We were blown away. 24-7, always on. It. We didn't understand it. It's, so what, but we also know what the brain does. So the brain will create a new normal based on adaptation. So if you're going to push hard and get up on those limits, and I'm not talking about acute stress now, I'm talking about chronic stress, the brain goes, oh, I see what you're doing to me. Okay, so you're going to play this game where you're not going to feed me properly. Right from recovery. Okay, you're not going to feed me. Well, then I'm just going to damp down the output. So you're going to not really notice because I'm going to slowly titrate down um, the ability to focus deeply, the ability to um, have enough of that. They're they're called beta brain waves in our brain, which are like this high, intense, focused uh, brain wave. I'm going to just kind of damp those down. I'm going to give you more theta, more more alpha brain waves, which are a little bit slower rhythm. And you're not going to really notice it, but I'm in the survival game. I know you're trying to play this you know, high-performing ego you know, game, but that's just not going to work for long. So the, the normal becomes a sub-optimization. And that's why right now, like the organizations that we're fortunate to spend time with, like Microsoft and AT&T and Starbucks and Salesforce, that there – I won't say – I won't call one company out, but there is a fatigue that runs through – what we've experienced the modern workforce. And that fatigue is based on the running to the edge and staying there and not right. recovering properly. And so how do you recover? Sleep. If your brain does not get the right sleep, recovery is not in place. Nutrition and hydration, moving properly. You know, For many people in the business world, it seems like they are professional sitters. Okay, no problem. Because their job is to think creatively and critically. And so as a professional sitter, that creates a kyphosis where their back kind of uh, humps over just a little bit, their shoulders come up, their hip flexors become tight, and that becomes a massive distraction to um, the carriage. You know, your The way that your brain thinks about what it's supposed to do, because that humped over feeling or um, body posture actually stimulates another mechanism in the brain called the fight-flight-freeze response. So when your chin comes down, and you lean forward, that bend, and your hips are tight, if you think about that posture, that's not long ago, like you know, 5,000 years ago, where we start to really need that type of posture to run from predators. So it's this cascade, this, I don't know, snake-eating-its-tail experience, and so recovery is like the lowest-lying fruit, and um, we all know it, but you gotta, have, you gotta you gotta really want something bigger than yourself, bigger than the ego, bigger than money, to change the way that you operate on a day-in and day-out basis. You have to really crave or want or see something that is larger than yourself. And that's called purpose. And purpose, as we know, is relatively rare in modern times.
1: I think it's, I think it's good to, to come back to what are we working for. Because a, a lot of times, so many folks are committed to this success, whatever that means— even if it makes them weak, as you're pointing out all the ways, just even in the most basic choices we make every day about how we move and eat and sleep and that kind of thing, we put ourselves on a path to become weak. And uh, But I think there's a, a an assumption that if we're successful, then we'll be strong. But we don't realize that we put ourselves on a path of weakness, even to prove that we're not weak or whatever it is that's driving us there. And so if we come back to this idea of purpose and playing for something bigger than ourselves, we've got to ramp up this awareness of like, well, is this making me strong? And am I big enough to get out of my own way? If I want to be strong and say to hell with this stuff, that's making me weak. Like, can I walk away from this game if it's not really serving me? And I I think we're back to that identity stuff of like, who am I, if I'm not making X a year, who am I, if I'm not playing at this level, who am I, who am I? So, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because, again, that's more of the psychology. It's more of this identity piece more than, yeah, these guys know they need to get sleep and eat well. There's all that information out on YouTube. They can get it in, in 20 minutes. So, But this identity piece, this thing is, that just has them hamstrung, like, I can't do that because I'll die. So it's, 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 it's this ego survival thing. How, how can we work a little bit with that, start to relax that part of ourselves that says, I have to be successful or else I'll, my life will fall apart. I have to weaken myself or else.
2: Because there's at least two ways that I think about this, but I'll start with a thought. The two ways are, if you're a parent, I've got one thought. And if you're trying to be an alpha in the environment, you know, and you're not in the parenting phase, I got another thought about it. And so um, let's start with a model that many people are working from. And that model was passed down to us from the Industrial Revolution, where machines were coming online. And it's one of the great, you know, generations of all time. Machines are coming around, and the hardworking, smart humans—our our, our great grandparents and grandparents—were saying, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, machines aren't replacing me. No chance. Not in this family." And so, what did they do? They said, "I'll work it. I'm going to work, and I'm going to figure it out. Not, and I'm doing it for this family." You know, so that's a really important thing. You know, it's a great response to machines. Maybe a better response would be, I'm going to figure out how to run these machines and program them, which we're seeing that, you know, in the last 20 years mm-hmm. as a response as well. Okay, so we're handed this model that I need to do more to be more. I need to do the extraordinary to be extraordinary It's how it's been filtered into our current way of living. So they had the the kind of thing right. nuh I'm not letting this you know, I'm not letting these machines replace it. And if you think back to your grandparents or great grandparents, like that, that, that nobility and strength was probably with them. I hope at least. And, but in modern times, it's like, I need to do more to be more. I'm watching right now in front of us, the most extraordinary and bravest and courageous men and women in the sport world, flipping that model. And they're saying, no, 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 it's broken. I'm not going to allow myself to be defined by what I do. I'm going to flip the model, and and they're making a commitment to be more, to be more grounded, be more authentic, be more present, be more connected, be more integrated, be more, and let the doing flow from there. And then you get this exponential output, you know, because now we're actually setting ourselves up to run to the edge, recover properly, and it's at the edge, by the way, is where flow state happens, where, you know, the science of what athletes call the zone or musicians call it being in the pocket, it happens at the edges of capacity. Um, not in the safe confines of, um, you know, playing it safe or whatever. And it doesn't happen um, uh, when people are chronically fatigued, we miss it. Okay. So now let's go back just one level under, if you're an alpha ripping and running, trying to figure it out, like you're in that hunting phase of your life. um, Those men and women are not going to hear this and say, you know what, I'm going to try to play the game smarter. They're they're saying, you know what, this is, this is nonsense. (laughs) You know, it's working for me now. Look at my earnings. I'm kicking ass. And uh, I'm not changing a damn thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to take one or two little gems and nuggets and see if I can like scaffold them onto how I'm doing things. Totally cool. But to get to the next, next level, what 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 I'm talking about, what I've seen and experienced and been a part of, is it is a fundamental commitment to organize your life to run to the edge and recover properly. And there's nothing easy about what I'm suggesting. It is very hard. And when you run to the edge, I'm talking about doing it intelligently. And the way that we do it intelligently is having incredibly fine-tuned feedback loops. In business, the feedback loops are for shit. Nobody, very rarely, you get a quarterly report, you get an annual thing, you know, like very rarely do we get these real-time feedback loops about how we're doing. In athletics, in athletics, Feedback loops are happening real time by expert coaches. There's film. You're breaking it down with a coach and with peers. They're, you know, There's biometrics that we're putting on guys so they can feel and see the evidence of getting stronger, fitter, hydrated, whatever, whatever, whatever. We're measuring brain waves and activities to see if they're actually changing the way that they're able to optimize their brain output. And you know what? Most people struggle with authentic feedback because they feel vulnerable. They feel exposed. They feel critiqued because they're already so hard critiquing themselves that they can't definitely have somebody else critique them. But to get better, we have to be open to feedback loops to help us figure out where we can get better and where we can optimize that run to the edge output I'm talking about. So how are those alphas going to change? They're going to hit their head on the desk and bleed out. They're going to be miserable with their relationships. And um, they're probably feeling both of those a little bit and they've been carrying water for a long time. They're a bit more tired than they thought life should be. They've got good money in their pocket, and they're a little bit more hollow because the relationships aren't deep. They're running around from relationship to relationship, or the steady one that they have is getting a little boring because it's not going deep enough because they're not spending time on themselves to go deep. They're more achievement-based. Okay, how do I know that? I can relate to that, and I see it often in the alpha-competitive environments that I'm in. Now, if you're a parent, okay, here we go. Get it right for your kids. Most people, if they're relating at all to that first kind of scenario I just laid out from the alpha competitor, the the go-getter, if you will, they want something. We all want something very special for our children. We live on the same planet. We breathe the same air. We walk on the same earth. We have the same hopes and dreams for our children. And somehow we think that if we tell them what to do, that they'll figure it out. But we can't show them because we haven't figured it out. So we have to show them. What do we got to show them? Mom and dad are going to do it this way. We're going to invest in our inner life so that we can flourish. What does flourishing mean? What does success mean, if you will? It means being deeply connected, being integrated, having a sense of purpose and meaning in life, supporting you to figure out who you are. And I'm going to do the same thing and I'm going to work my ass off and recover intelligently every day. And I'm going to commit to do that so that you can have a template so you can do the same. And this is not hard to do. Uh, strike that. It's not hard to understand. It is really challenging to do yeah. because we live in this 24 by 7 on access Instagram highlight reel that doesn't show the darker side, the ugly side. The, 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 process.
1: side. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the process.
2: Yeah. And, 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 and you know what? Where do you figure out the process? Where's that book written? It's not written well. You got to write it for yourself. You got to figure out what works for you, and or go to the eleven world religions. That's basically the handbook. You know, from very bright people and organizations that said, "Hey, listen, this is how we think the right way of living is." And when you deconstruct eleven of the world religions, they're pretty similar. There's some basic practices in there. You know that um, are, are thread throughout all of them. So. That's one way to think about it as well.
1: Okay. It sounds like the 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 crux here is okay, how do we help ourselves? How do we give ourselves permission to recover? Because when we when we take out recovery, that's where we put ourselves on this bleak trajectory that you're talking about here.
2: So Yeah, and I would I would I would even go further and say it's not permission to recover, it's an insistence. It is a relentless approach because I want to get to the edge, I have to recover properly. And I'm not talking about we're not we're not fragile. Humans are not fragile. We are finely tuned though. So it's appreciating the fine tuneness. Mm-hmm. And you know, if, if, if it's, if this is conceptually not right and somebody doesn't feel the pain to want to make the change, then get some feedback, you know, get some bio data to track your brain output, to track your vigilance, focus, whatever, and compare it to the normal population. Um, I think you'd be horrified and surprised if you actually track to have feedback loops to tell you how you're doing.
1: Yeah, that's the part where we don't got to get over ourselves enough, willing willing to get over ourselves enough to actually look at the truth of how we're doing instead of how we Perfect. look in the mirror. Okay, so it's, it's this insistence to recover. Uh, let's just do real small. What's what? Where's this guy start if, if he's got this voice in his brain, I got to be 24-7, I got to be checking my email at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, and then again at 5 in the morning and burn, burn, burn. Uh, what's it look like? Where can, where can we just give him the smallest thing and plant this seed that something's got to shift in his world?
2: Well, I think you start with, um, setting the, playing the long game. And right now it's a little bit of the short game. So play the long game. Um, we know from a 75 year study at Harvard, uh, that examined people that had fulfillment in life is that two things were really important. One is they wrestled with the deep, important, difficult questions in life. So starting with like okay who am i what is my purpose how am i going to organize my life in a way that feels right and authentic to me that's those five questions are really powerful i'd say start by writing those damn things down and you know bouncing them off a few people that you really trust and calibrate and see you know have them do the same
1: so zoom out don't don't be just focused on the next fire and always you know the next fire to that it seems like we've got to pull out and have the big picture
2: yeah for sure and then i'd say you know the science and the tradition of mindfulness is must be recognized right now the science is ridiculous the history of being it being around for 2500 years embedded throughout most of the world religions like we have to pay attention to that And the science is crisp, you know, like 20 is an optimal dose, if you will, 20 minutes of just focusing on one thing. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is a way you learn about, you know, who you are and how you speak to yourself. And there's lots of protocols and practices about mindfulness right now, but it looks like research is coming in about eight minutes is a minimal effective practice, you know, about eight minutes a day. And you get real brain structural changes. We're seeing electrical changes. We're seeing behavioral changes. We're seeing, um, you know, relationships uh, change as well. So about eight minutes a day, you start to get the beginnings of some change. And so I would start with those two things.
1: Yeah, he spends more time on the toilet looking at Instagram than doing that. So we'll we'll give him some incentive to start there. Uh, (laughs) Check out out Michael Gervais' uh, uh, Compete to Create. Online course at compete to create dot net and also his podcast finding mastery. It's at findingmastery.net. dot net. I've really enjoyed this uh, conversation. I feel really appreciative. You're doing this work at, at a high level. It's it totally aligns with the work that I'm doing too. And it just, I, I love that this is becoming more commonplace. So thank you so much.
2: Yeah, Trip. Nice job. I love your questions, mate. And I, I loved like, um, I, I actually really appreciate that when I jumped on that little soapbox a couple of times that you just would let me flow with it so so thank you for that and then um I also appreciate you mentioning compete to create because coach Carroll the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks we we've seen for a combined 60 years like how people organize their inner life to do the extraordinary we've been part of it we help create it we know the science and the art of it and so one day in the in the training center he he you know we're heading into our first super bowl and he says hey Mike can you feel this I was like, yeah. And what he was talking about is like having, you know, 53 alpha competitors with their noses pointed in the same direction, which is unbelievably challenging to have happen. And he says, do you think anyone outside of sport would be interested in what we're doing? And without hesitation, he's like, let's just write it down. And so we write it down on the back of a napkin. You know, here we are six years later, we've done like, I think I think one company has invested 40,000 humans have gone through the course at eight hours a person. That's like 320,000 human hours, just one corporation. So what we've done now, we, we finally, we finally tweaked this thing. So it's available to individuals and uh, it's an eight week online course. We couldn't be more stoked to introduce the very basic principles and practices to get that thing going. And uh, again, I'm on my soapbox, but it's like, it's purpose and passion for me to help people organize their inner life to be connected to the really deep stuff, which only happens in the present moment. It's where love happens. It's where extraordinary performance. It's where connection happens. But we can't do it if we don't organize our inner life to be able to capture those opportunities.
1: That's beautiful, man. Consider me an ally. Thank you so much, man.
2: Yeah, let's go. Thanks, Tripp. Appreciate you.
1: If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily.